0: Hello and welcome to Asia Stream, where we track, report and analyze the issues and interests of the world's largest region. I am Jack Stone Truitt, Nikkei Asia business and markets reporter here in New York City. Today's episode: Turkey's rise on the world stage. Linking Europe to the Middle East and to Western Asia, Turkey's intercontinental geography has always been central to its geopolitical clout. And today, as the war in Ukraine has demanded that nations pick a side in ways not seen since the Cold War, Turkey has managed to play off both, acting as a member of NATO while maintaining its ties with Russia. Occupying this kind of swing-vote wildcard status is the latest move in President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's quest to restore his nation's place at the table with other great powers, one that began when his AKP party took power nearly 20 years ago. Today, we take a look at Erdogan's grand vision for his country, its role in Asia and the rest of the world, and whether or not the multitude of problems he faces at home will finally catch up to his political ambitions. You're listening to The Sound of Asia, streaming in your ear. From Nikkei Asia, this is Asia Stream.
1: A reminder that Nikkei Asia is currently offering an exclusive discount for our podcast listeners. Get three months of our award-winning coverage for just $9. To redeem, just click the link in the episode description.
0: In 2010, a notorious leaked memo from the U.S. ambassador to Turkey said that the country's foreign policy had Rolls-Royce ambitions, but the resources of a rover. Now, if that were ever true, it certainly is not the case today. Turkey has elbowed its way to greater prominence since Russia invaded Ukraine just over six months ago by navigating both sides of the war. It has condemned the invasion and sold deadly drones to Ukraine, but refused to join the sanctions regime against Russia. This strategy has upset just about every stakeholder along the way, including its NATO allies, but has also left it as the sole nation with enough of a relationship with both Ukraine and Russia to lead negotiations between the two. Well, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres is set to meet with Ukrainian and Turkish presidents today.
1: Erdogan is meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. And those meetings are raising concerns that Putin could strengthen economic ties with Turkey, which is a member of NATO.
0: But Erdogan's big ambitions for Turkey were growing well before the war in Ukraine. In recent years, Turkey has solidified its influence as a leading power of the Muslim world. Erdogan has put great diplomatic effort into restoring ties with regional powers in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Egypt, and towards beefing up alliances with Turkic nations in Central Asia. Beyond its backyard, Turkish Islamic charities have helped spread its influence in places as far away as Myanmar and parts of Africa. Domestically, Turkey's economy is rapidly growing. Recent numbers indicate its GDP grew at a nearly 8% clip in the second quarter of this year, outpacing most of the G20. But this growth has been undercut by devastating levels of inflation, and the Turkish lira has been nosediving in value since last November. The eurozone is Turkey's biggest trading partner, and Europe owns much of Turkey's debt. So, if the country's inflation crisis triggers a broader economic meltdown, that could spell trouble not just for Europe, but the global economy. Economic issues have already put pressure on Erdogan and his AKP party, who face elections next year the vote is shaping up to be a referendum on Erdogan's unorthodox economic policies, which have exacerbated inflation, as well as the broader human rights violations that have happened under his watch. In his eight years as president, Turkey has slid towards authoritarianism as Erdogan has stifled press freedoms and persecuted dissenting voices, even forcing thousands of academics and politicians to step down and, in many cases, face imprisonment. So, if you're not already paying attention to Turkey or Turkey, its Turkish name, which the government has asked the international community to start using, you should. And to take a closer look ourselves at this rising republic, we'll be hearing from Nika Asia correspondent in Istanbul, Sinan Tavshan. But first, let's hear from Asia Stream correspondent, Monica Hunter-Hart, who is actually just reporting in Turkey. Monica, welcome back to the studio.
1: Thank you so much. It's good to be back.
0: So you're the first member of the Asia Stream production team here in New York to actually report for us abroad.
1: That's right. It was a cool experience. Uh, Among other things, I was taking a look at Turkey's economic problems. I know that the focus of the episode today is on Ankara's growing power and influence. But, of course, that's not the entire story of what's happening in Turkey right now. The country is also severely struggling with breakneck inflation.
0: Which only seems to be getting worse.
1: That's right. When I lived in Turkey six years ago, the exchange rate was about 3 lira to $1. And this week, it's over 18 lira to the dollar. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It really hits you, of course, when you go shopping. Uh, I went to a bazaar in one of the country's medium sized cities with my friend and translator, Muhammad Ali Chanaj, and brought a mic with me so that we could talk to some of the vendors.
0: And what did they have to say?
1: People are definitely struggling. It's maybe best summed up in the most memorable conversation I had, which was with a woman who sold vegetables, cucumbers and lettuce mostly. She went on a rant to me and her friend. She said, Seeds are expensive, electricity's expensive, fuel's expensive, employees are expensive, and there are fewer people in the bazaar. I don't know what the F we're going to do. We are here in the city of Ushak, Turkey, in western Anatolia. This is the Çarşamba Pazar, or Wednesday Bazaar, that happens, as you can guess, weekly in Ushak. It's the biggest bazaar in Ushak. So we're here to understand how prices have been changing in Turkey and to hear a little bit about how people have been affected, and how it's
2: affected this
3: bazaar.
2: He said that, like, tell the Americans Turkey is not going well right now.
1: <laughs>
2: this here, like, the fish section you okay. sell fish.
3: We
1: got this like um, beautiful sort of like red um, display with all the fish lined out. They look really great and delicious. Um,
2: and uh, yeah, there's
1: sort of a maybe man in his maybe 60s, um, sort of middle-aged man, uh, speaking to us just then. Um, he said his name was Mehmet. He
2: said that that he's in business for 20 years. He said like. The price is going to change because the like the diesel fields price up, it affects the prices about the fish things because it has to be like the transport from the seaside over there. And last year just people just came by with the, like the 50 Turkish stores and buy their cheese and olives and like the uh, fruits and vegetables and also like the fish and everything. But in these days, if people have like 200 Turkish Liras, they've got like the fruits and vegetables and nothing else. And he said uh, his job kind of losing uh, at least like the
1: 20%. Hmm.
2: All
1: right, well, I'm signing out here at the Ushak Pazar.
0: Thank you for that, Monica. It's very easy to overlook the actual people impacted by all these data points you see in the news.
1: That was just a few snippets of what people told me, but I hope I got the point across. Basically, many food prices have doubled in less than a year. Some vendors said that they are getting fewer customers than they used to, but the more common thing I heard is that the customers are just buying less, and they're prioritizing the most basic items.
0: And just a few weeks ago, Turkey's Central Bank yet again lowered interest rates, uh, defying all economic orthodoxy as we've seen it do many times before already. But now let's get to the other part of the story and your conversation with Sinan about Ankara's geopolitical ambitions.
1: To talk to us today about Turkey's ascendant role on the world stage, we are joined by Sinan Tavşan, Nikkei Asia's reporter for Turkey, based in Istanbul. Sinan, welcome to Asia Stream.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: I want to just start out with talking about this really remarkable negotiating power that Turkey seems to have right now and, and be exercising in terms of the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, obviously, Turkey, you know, arranged the first ministerial meeting between Ukraine and Russia. Um, it later brokered a deal with the UN to export grains from Ukraine and fertilizers from Russia. I mean, how is it even possible that it has all of this power? What What is going on there?
3: Actually, I think it's uh, a combination of uh, Turkey's Geopolitical positioning, the location, because first of all, Turkey is located just next to Ukraine and and Russia in Black Sea. There are neighbors. And also Turkey uh, has the keys of uh, Black Sea as it controls the Turkish Straits, which is called Bosphorus and Dardanelles. And according to the Montreux Convention, uh, during war times, especially, Turkey has has, uh, total uh, freedom to decide uh, what to do on it. And Turkey decided that this is a war. And it's uh, closed uh, the straits to uh, all navies, Russia and others. Uh, So it kind of contained the Russian fleet inside the Black Sea with no resupplies, Uh, but also uh, managed to uh, avoid an escalation uh, by adding other forces inside too. So uh, Russia is probably not that happy, but not that also uh, angry either, because it's also keeping others away. Now, coming to politics, Turkey and Russia has a very complex relations. Uh, Turkey and Russia has been facing each other off in Libya, in Syria, but still Erdogan and Putin, uh, for probably twenty years, uh, they know each other and uh, they can kind of manage uh, this difficult situation and they can deconflict in times and also uh, they can find modus vivendi, even if they are on the opposite sides. So they kind of build kind of a weird trust. So this also helped a lot. And as you know, the most of the Western countries uh, burn bridges with Russia. Uh, Turkish officials are saying that uh, you need a country that can talk to both sides. So which in this case, geographically very close, militarily capable of uh, holding such a mission and also has the trust of both uh Russia and Ukraine automatically put Turkey on the spot.
1: So Erdogan is also trying to uh, harness this power that Turkey has um, in terms of getting some diplomatic concessions right now. It has been blocking, um, temporarily, Sweden and Finland's request to join NATO. Uh, Now it is allowing that membership process to proceed. But basically, it has been accusing Sweden and Finland of harboring terrorists, um, by which it means harboring people who are connected, it says, to the PKK, a Kurdish militant organization that Turkey considers to be a terrorist organization. So now Turkey has signed a memorandum with Sweden and Finland, allowing the membership process again to proceed. But it's a kind of vague memorandum. So, I mean, it's promised quite a few things and there are some genuine concessions there. But in addition, it's promised in this sort of vague way to, quote, just address pending deportation requests, deporting uh, 73 people that it believes have been linked to the PKK and other um, so-called terrorist organizations. So I guess I'm just wondering, how do you think this is going to play out? Like, Is it actually likely that Norway and Sweden would extradite these 73 people, um, or is it more likely that Erdogan will eventually back down from these demands?
3: I think uh, from the outset, there's, I don't see any chance that uh, Finland and Sweden uh, extraditing 70 plus people, and probably some are already their uh, citizens. But the thing is, Turkey is not only upset with Finland and Sweden, it's upset with almost all NATO members because they think that they're singling out their own quote unquote terrorists and your terrorist is good. My terrorist is bad. And there's, even PKK is labeled as a terrorist organization. Uh, we see its extensions being omitted from those lists, etc. And it is not only Finland Sweden, they're also openly saying in Germany, etc., France, the PKK uh, elements uh, are also active there too. But they are already NATO members, so there's nothing that Turkey can do. So I think the Finland and Sweden is just caught uh, in a not a good time, I can say. And Turkey is probably using this to make a case to show the global public opinion that there is such a problem, which Turkey is very discontent with it. And I think ultimately Turkey will uh, let those two countries into NATO. I don't expect any big extraditions, Maybe they, some people, quote-unquote, might choose to go to a third country on their own will, etc., for a temporary time uh, just to make Turkey happy. There can be always solutions in diplomacy. I don't see it as a big problem that will linger on for a very, very long time.
1: Let's talk a little bit about... Erdogan's goals, particularly on the in the international realm. So in his campaign speeches recently, he has often actually borrowed some rhetoric from the Trump playbook. He has been saying that he wants to, quote, make Turkey great again. So what does making Turkey great again mean to Erdogan?
3: Yeah, Actually, uh, for Erdogan, uh, for the Turkish, let's uh, say, uh, center-right and right-wing uh, political parties, uh, they uh, are very much proud of the Turkey's uh, predecessor, let's say Ottoman Empire and its legacy, its uh, successes, and they want to build on that. Of course, this doesn't mean anything about irredentism, uh, like taking uh, parts of other countries, but they feel like a moral responsibility of uh, succeeding it in terms of uh, protecting the uh, Muslim communities, uh, Turkish-speaking communities in the past Ottoman uh, Empire areas, etc. And he has this uh, vision of a great power and he wants to reinstate that. But it means, of course, in terms of economics, diplomacy, uh, and in many other ways, and military might, and um, Turkeys. Turkey has been old before, even Erdogan, Turkey was a G20 state, Turkey was a NATO member, and uh, still... Um, he also expanded diplomatic outreach a lot. And now Turkey has the sixth largest uh, diplomatic network uh, in the world, in terms of embassies. Uh, and he really uh, pushed on uh, indigenous uh, uh, weapons programs for Turkey, became an, became an exporter, especially uh, the armed and unarmed drums are right now exported to around 25 countries which is probably the biggest proliferation in this uh, industry, uh, surpassing even China. Uh, so he's building on this and he's very confident. And he thinks that Turkey should be, have an equal standing with the uh, Western powers on the table. Quoting from the uh, Washington Institute's uh, Turkey desk uh, chief, Sonar Chaptai, he wants to make Turkey great and Muslims proud again. <laughs> And and also it is really resonating well within his uh, voter base, which is the whole issue actually. Uh, And it is not only Turkey. I can say that if you go to, if you talk to uh, someone from Pakistan, if you talk to someone from the many Arab countries, in many uh, international opinion polls, Erdogan polls the best among the Muslim leaders. So uh, as he's very much openly talking uh, against sometimes Western policies, uh, not mincing his words is really resonating well within Turkish society, his water base, plus among the Muslim public opinion.
1: Speaking of, you know, Erdogan being a Muslim leader, um, he's been spending a lot of diplomatic energy on the Central Asian Turkic states region recently. So Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, he's been trying to boost the power of that region. He calls it Turkestan. (laughs) And he says that it will become a center of attraction and power for human civilization. So what is his plan there? And should we expect the Turkestan region to become a greater center of power in the coming years?
3: things are really, really changing in Central Asia, as you know, especially after the Ukraine war. And now uh, all the Central Asian uh, states are also very much uh, actually, I guess, worried about what's next uh, from Russia. In that sense, they will probably want to uh, leverage and counter Russia in the coming period with Turkey and not only Turkey, with also other big powers. And probably Many things change after the Azerbaijan's war with Armenia in 2020, which is mostly won by the uh, Turkish military uh, drones. And this is very much uh, well watched by the Central Asian states. And now Turkey sold drones to Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan in Central Asia, apart from Azerbaijan. And um, there is an organization called Organization of Turkic States, which had the name of Turkic Council until last year. And there is the next uh, summit of heads of states in November in Uzbekistan. And it will be the way it is very interesting and important because it will be the first one, firstly, the summit after uh, Ukraine war. And there were lots of unrest and protests in Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, as you know. So after these, how will these Turkic countries will respond? And I think what they are trying to do slowly without antagonizing China or Russia, they want to uh, build on their, let's say, cooperation and kind of slow integration uh, so that they can uh, defend their, let's say, uh, sovereignty and their prosperity against uh, third powers and they can leverage against them. But still, this organization of organization of Turkic states called OTS, we can say, is very much careful when you see its statements. Uh, it does not touch on thorny so issues about Russia, China, never mentions anything about the problems of Uyghurs in China, the ethnically Turkic and Muslim people. Uh, so uh, they're slowly but surely integrating and uh, boosting cooperation. And I think it will uh, increase its speed after what's happening in Ukraine as uh, the Russian ambitions are right now very much wearing the Central Asian states and Turkey has surely has a, uh, a role to play, of course, with the help of the West.
1: Erdogan has also had this kind of pivot to Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Actually, it's a very uh, successful pivot uh, against, uh, for Africa, uh, because Turkey is a big manufacturing base uh, in this region and they want to sell their products and export them and from, which are affordable products and good fit for the African market, which is actually promising. Uh, they have a very integrated policy of, they have more than right now, uh, 43 or 44 something embassies in all over Africa with a target of 50, Uh, probably this is as far as I know, the second largest network after China. And also they have this second large, Turkish Airlines has the second largest uh, network in Africa as a non-African carrier. So building on this, plus the Islamic charities, the uh, Turkish schools in all over Africa, even the Turkish media outlets uh, broadcasting in local languages like Swahili, it's a very integrated uh, policy. And very recently we had uh, the third Turkey-Africa Partnership Summit in Istanbul, last year, December. 16 heads of states and more than 100 ministers from Africa attended it. So it really shows that how Turkey's power is increasing in in Africa. Uh, And Turkey is not shying away, even elbowing like France or Portugal with their colonial pasts to gain advantage in this competition. Uh, So it is turning out very well for Turkey. Of course, Turkey doesn't have the kind of financial power like Japan or China has which pours tens of billions of dollars. But still, compared to what Turkey is bringing on the table in terms of the resources, I think it's fair to say Turkey is punching above its weight in Africa.
1: What are the long-term dividends of all these strategies going to be? What do you think Turkey's role in the world stage in, say, 20 years will look like?
3: This is a very, very difficult question for an emerging country like Turkey because, you know, things are changing uh, quite fast here with boom and bust cycles. Turkey is kind of a destined to uh, be a regional power because of its 80 million population, it's a manufacturing base, it's geolocation between Europe, Asia and Africa uh, with great relations with many countries, with connections with those local communities in these countries as a trading nation, uh, been on the liberal economy uh, for decades. Uh, so, uh, and right now we see the supply chain disruptions in Asia. I just wrote a re- report that how many countries are shifting uh, orders. So Turkey, uh, from Asia to fill in the orders for Europe. So, uh, I think things, things would be quite all right for Turkey in the long run with a, uh, age average, I guess around 31 or something. So very young population, uh, So uh, I'm really optimistic in the long run uh, for Turkey. and But I think we have to, again, find a way to mend fences with our Western allies, uh, Europe and US, which can bring us the much needed uh, know-how, technologies, uh, finance, uh, capital. So uh, if we can, let's say, play our cards well and have a good working relation with the West, I think Turkey would be quite all right.
1: So I want to zero in on Erdogan for a few minutes um, <clears throat> because it's really big gear for him and for the party that he founded, the AKP or the Justice and Development Party. So the AKP um, in a couple of months will have ruled Turkey for 20 20- years. Um, Nineteen of those years will um, have had Erdogan at the helm. Um, Erdogan has been Turkey's elected head of state since 2003. Um, But two decades, that's a pretty big deal. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about Erdogan and kind of what his rule has looked like. I know that you had uh, an interview with Erdogan when he um, was just about to come to power about 20 years ago. So I was hoping you could maybe tell us a little bit about that and what it's been like to report on him.
3: First of all, my first interview was 73 minutes or 75 minutes. Last one was seven minutes, so...
0: (laughs) Oh my God! From
3: from being the AKP's uh, founding chairman, uh, then becoming the president, probably makes that difference. (laughs) It is normal, actually. (laughs) Yeah, oh man. Uh, But still, uh, he's such a leader that he can't give you a headline in seven minutes, so it is not a big deal. (laughs) But following him, uh, he's really confident, I can say. Uh, what he is doing, and he has this grasp of his what his grassroots want. Uh, he is, let's say, the conserv- social conservative, let's say uh, nationalist base, and he knows what an average Turk aspires. And as a populist leader, he's giving it to them. Uh, that's, the I guess, the secret of him being coming from like a, he's not an elite actually. Uh, He's an ordinary man from an, say, from ordinary school. Uh, But still he fought his way up to the uh, chain, ladders of uh, power in Turkey. Uh, So, and he's a fighter and he will never, ever go down without a fight. He always likes to double down in every crisis. And he kept winning by doubling down until the last local elections, I might say. But it's his style. And I don't think it's something that he can change. That's the thing that he is making Erdoğan, Erdoğan. And now he's probably preparing for the most difficult uh, political uh, fights uh, of his career.
1: Could you just say a little bit more about his kind of populist appeal? You know, what is he providing for the average Turk um, that is so appealing? Hey,
3: He plays for that, let's say, the yarning of what I said, the, the past glory of the Ottoman Empire, the Seljuk Empire, the making Turkey great again as a global power of uh, economics, politics, diplomacy. And he's, let's say, I, they, they have a very uh, strong um, dominance in the media. So they're disseminating this uh, message uh, from ev- every channel, uh, to his uh, base and uh, for an ordinary Turk uh, I think this is appealing and I think this is difficult to understand in the West because they are looking from the prism of let's say other things like uh, Democracy rule of law, etc. freedom of speech Uh, but I don't think that those things are big issues for uh, water-based in Turkey, when they're making a decision, they're much more interested in um, the survival of the state and the greatness of the state, uh, how they can uh, meet ends at the end of the day. Uh, they have other pressing problems and uh, as long as they were met, I think they're uh, okay with the rest.
1: So the election is on June 18th, and it seems like potentially the opposition's best chance to remove Erdogan from power in recent memory. So what do you think Erdogan's chances are?
3: If you look at the polls, both uh, the President Erdogan's support rate and the ruling uh, alliance is uh, not doing well. But still, on the other hand, we still don't know who will be the candidate against Erdogan to challenge him. Or the policy set of those opposition parties, which is very much fragmented and looks incoherent actually in many policies with different worldviews. So Erdogan can still prevail uh, in the elections, depending on the uh, performance of the uh, opposition. Because right now he's disadvantaged because inflation in Turkey is right now 80%, percent 8 0 and we have around four to five million refugees. Uh, due to the result of our Syria policy, most Syrians and then Afghans and uh, Iraqis, et cetera. And compounded with the inflation, it's a very, very much these two are the biggest problems of Erdogan, actually. First, inflation, second, to refugees. I think opposition is uh, has its greatest chance in the last two decades to win against Erdogan, but it's really up for them to seize it or not. Uh, and Erdogan is a very shrewd politician, very pragmatist one, a very hardworking one. He can still turn things around. In 2015, he did. In four months, he brought back nine percentage points by calling elections more early. Uh, of course, things are right now different, but still uh, it's really uh, premature to write off Erdogan and his capabilities.
1: Sinan Tavşan, thank you so much for coming on Asia Stream. Thank you so
3: much for having me.
0: Thank you to Monica and Sinan. Just this week, Turkey accused fellow NATO member and historic adversary Greece of harassing Turkish fighter jets, which violates NATO rules. It remains to be seen how this dispute will be resolved. That's it for Asia Stream this week. As always, I encourage you to head to Nikkei Asia at asia.nikei.com for more in-depth coverage of Turkey and all things related to Asia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, subscribe, and leave us a review. And hopefully a five-star rating. And a last reminder that Nika Asia is currently offering an exclusive discount for our podcast listeners. To get the discount, just click the link in the episode description. This episode was produced by Monica Hunter Hart, and I'm your host, Jack Stone Truitt. We'll stream again in two weeks, when we'll be back to our streamlined state.